Welcome to the Aspen UK podcast, where we bring people together to discuss topics that matter. and welcome to today's conversation. It's part of a continuing series on Leadership Insights, where we are inviting members of our Aspen Institute in the UK alumni network to discuss key moments of strong leadership they've either seen or experienced recently. We're also keen to hear whether they've learned from bad leadership. I'm Penny Richards. I'm the Chief Exec of the Aspen Institute in the UK. We all know that in 2023 and before, we saw a deepening of political, media and societal polarisation. But we have also seen evidence that dialogue, mutual respect and a willingness to work together in strong leadership can really ease tensions in our society. Aspen UK works with prospective and senior leaders across the UK, helping them operate in a diverse and polarised world, but to also recognise how these dynamics can influence their actions and decisions as leaders. We hope that they learn from us how to be more aware of their own values, how to be more tolerant of others' perspectives, and how they can be even more inspired to drive positive change. And today we're joined by two Aspen UK rising leaders. And probably in all these conversations, I don't know two that have such more diverse professional backgrounds, but I, I'm sure we can find common ground. <laughs> We're with Isabel Brewers from the English National Ballet and Stefan Rolnick, who is a misinformation strategist. Really good to hear from you both again. I'm going to start straight away by jumping in. And um, Stefan, perhaps you can you can answer this first. What's one moment of excellent leadership in 2023 that stood out for you? Um, well, firstly, thank you so much for having me on. And I'm looking forward to learning a lot from Isabel about a subject that I know zero about as well. So really great to be here. Um, there's a lot of, I suppose, challenges we have at the moment that call for leadership, particularly in the realm of politics. And obviously my area I focus on is is misinformation and disinformation, conspiracy theories as well. And one of the areas where leadership is required and where we're seeing a huge amount of mis- and disinformation is on the vast changes we need to make to the way we live in order wow. to meet the climate crisis. And one of the areas where I think leadership is most called for at the moment, and actually where we've seen both a lack of leadership and examples of fantastic leadership, is around the changes we need to make to our cities in order to reprioritize from car-based cities to cities that prioritise people who get around by other means, whether that be public transport or anything else. And I think a lot of I've spoken to a lot of leaders around the United Kingdom who are taking on this challenge of trying to reduce carbon emissions from travel in their city centres. And we've spoken a lot about what it looks like to take on leadership in this area. And I think one of the people who we have seen take on leadership in this area is Sadiq Khan in London. And I think what he's done really fantastically, and you know, this maybe gets to something about leadership, which is leadership doesn't mean making everyone happy. Leadership really is about choosing who you are willing to upset in many ways. And I think Sadiq Khan has made that decision both with a long-term view to the future, the direction that he wants to move in and move London in as a leader, and he has also decided that he's willing to take on 
the heat from that and that success doesn't mean pleasing everyone. Actually, success means achieving the long-term change that you want to see. Oh, a really interesting example. Thank you. Isabel, um, you're based in London, I think. Um, but, but what's your example? Yeah, I mean, first of all, I just wanted to say, Stefan, that was an incredible answer and extremely inspiring. Um, and actually, I I myself am a huge admirer of Sadiq Khan and his ethos and his work. And he actually opened our, um, head, our new headquarters in Canning Town. And the speech he gave at the opening ceremony was so inspiring. And I guess it ties into a leader within the arts that I'm extremely um proud to have worked under um, and extremely proud to have shadowed um, actually as part of the scheme within um, the organization that allowed me to become one of the Aspen Institute rising leaders. Um, and that's Tamara Rojo. And um, I think beyond just a single moment, I think her vision and her ethos for the English National Ballet and its place in society, not just as a place of entertainment, but really a, a hub for fundamental societal growth and impact um, was really really admirable. Um, she put into practice the Ballet Futures Pipeline Project, which was um, a, a project to kind of um, instigate change in demographics within the art form from its foundational levels. And um, she offered bursaries and scholarships to uh, schools in underprivileged areas of the UK um, and specifically to ethnic minorities um, to really be able to get excellent dance training from a young age because we were trying to address the diversity and inclusion issue within the art form. But we're realizing that we didn't have the talent from its it's seeds, um, and that's where the seeds had to be sown. Um, and I think that to me was really an admirable and really important step in uh, progressing the art form and a really incredible form of leadership. And um, she's also the woman who put into practice the dance leaders of the future scheme within the English National Ballet, which is an extremely unique um, platform that no other dance company in the world has. And it was, again, to address the issue that leaders within the arts, um, within the dance world specifically, had not actually gained the, the foundational managerial training and leadership training that they needed to, to become the great directors of arts institutions across the world. Um, and throughout her leadership, uh, she premiered some, let's say, a bit more risque pieces, um, particularly one that had some negative critical acclaim. But what was fantastic is that we brought in audiences that had never been to watch dance before and they left completely uh, mesmerized and flabbergasted. And uh, it was a very memorable piece. And most importantly, we were really bringing a message across. There was, it was very dense. It was very layered. There was um, elements of uh, misogyny and violence and societal imbalance. And um, it was really a, a piece that had impact. And she was able to put aside any kind of personal opinions because I think personally she didn't love the piece um, and press opinions um, and actually was able to, to uplift our morale and remind us of the strength of our delivery um, and igniting the importance of the message that we were putting across with our work and really reinforcing the value that art has within society, not just as entertainment, but as, as really like an educational and empowering um, tool for society, for all of society. Have um, either of you been inspired by any unusual leadership styles in the last year? Um, Penny will be unsurprised to hear me turn to this example. I'm expecting an eye roll. But mine is that football? No, well, no, it's, it's about sport. It's about cricket. Um, like many other cricket fans, over the summer, I was absolutely glued to my TV for the Ashes Test Match series. And for those who don't know, the Ashes series is a very old um, 
you know, it's a, it's a core pillar of, particularly for English and Australian cricket fans, it's a core pillar of the cricketing calendar. It's a, it's a rivalry that dates back many years. Um, it's tied up in kind of imperialism and politics and culture and all the rest of it, this rivalry where England and Australia, Australia play each other um, once every two years, um, taking it in turns to host it from different countries. And this year they were playing in England and there was a huge amount of hype surrounding this tournament particularly for one reason, which was this new style of cricket that they were playing, which has got this very fun name called Basball, named after the new coach, Brendan McCullum. And Basball um, is as much, you know, and this is going to sound very pretentious, but as much a kind of philosophy about sport and how you approach sport as it is a kind of tactical approach. And it was spearheaded by the captain, a guy called Ben Stokes. And there's three really interesting elements to Ben Stokes and Basball and this movement for a new style of cricket that he was bringing to this once in a generation kind of level of importance and intrigue ashes series that was happening this summer. The first thing is Ben Stokes as a leader has been very honest about his struggles with mental health. That's a big part of his journey as a sportsman that he struggled quite a lot. and He's been really open and vulnerable about that. And so what he's done is he's developed this kind of strategic style of playing called basball. And the point of basball goes against everything we know about test cricket. Test cricket is repressed, it's colonial, it's English, it's about grinding the opponent down in the most boring way possible. The games take five days and sometimes end without a result. So this is the kind of level of um, kind of stuffy, repressed kind of Englishness we're talking about. And the idea of basball is that actually, no, what we're going to do is we're not going to go by all the kind of strategic pillars of this game and the strategic norms. What we're going to do is play without fear and express ourselves. And there's something really interesting there that Ben Stokes defended all of his players, particularly the ones who weren't playing all that well. And he defended all of his players from the media. And he said, look, all I want my team to do is play their game and express themselves. And if that means taking risks and going for it in a way that people aren't used to seeing in test cricket, then that's fine because that's the way we've decided to play. And winning, and this is a really big thing, winning isn't everything. We want to entertain people and we want to get people to fall in love with test cricket again because there's this movement in, in cricket away from the longer formats, the shorter formats, which are more commercial. And so Ben Stokes really put himself out there. He put the England team out there. There was this, this vulnerability, this collective vulnerability. Some people called it a kind of like men's wellness cult in a way. There's this group of young men who were kind of, who, who loved each other and supported each other and were willing to back each other on the biggest stage and be vulnerable enough to say, we're going to express ourselves, play our way regardless of the result. And in kind of classic narrative fashion, they were 2-0 down at the beginning of a five-game series. And the series ended 2-all. They came back and they very nearly won it. And, you know, there's a part of me that thinks that if they had won it, all of kind of Britain and England's repressed demons of colonialism would have been exercised, you know, completely. But unfortunately, <laughs> it didn't go that far. But I think there's a huge amount we can take from sport and leaders in sport. And, you know, while lots, lots of areas of sport shows a complete lack of leadership on kind of key issues of our time that go beyond sport, I think it was a fascinating example of vulnerability and mutual support and love among men in a group, which just made it a particularly fascinating case study. Well, a lovely example. Thank you so much. Bella. <laughs> yeah, I, I have to say that was a really, really inspiring story. <laughs> um, I guess I have a similar anecdote and story type um, example here. 
um, it was actually back in 2022. Um, and it was it's something that will always remain in my memory. Um, we were about to go on tour to New York and we'd unfortunately received some news from the shipping container that had our set going to New York. And we were about to put on a piece called Giselle. Uh, and a really fundamental part of this piece is this wall. Um, and the wall was very likely going to be stuck in a massive customs jam. And we didn't know if it would make it in time. Um, and our director had a chat with us, a disappointing chat saying, um, I'm really sorry, we are due to leave in two days, but we're, we're not sure if the set will even make it. And um, we all gathered together and we said, okay, a few months ago, we premiered a piece called Blake Works. Um, it has no set whatsoever and costumes that we can take in our own suitcase. We took it in our own hands. We put this piece together in two hours. We re-rehearsed it, rebuilt it from the top. And we had an alternative. We had something that we could have taken to New York. All the flights were booked, every accommodation. I mean, there's 75 dancers, a whole orchestra. Um, we couldn't go to New York and not show up in one of the, the biggest tours um, that we've done recently. Uh, in the end, actually, Tamara Rojo was very influential and was able to um, gather some of um, New York's syndicate and was able to clear that wall through customs um, in time. But beyond that, uh, we actually had managed to gather ourselves together and support each other um, and put an alternative, to get, an alternative together in our own hands. Um, and I think it was really a special and memorable example of this cohesive leadership where there was not necessarily a leader and, and a set of followers, but we ourselves, uh, the dancers took it within our own hands to be our own leaders and help each other out and influence each other and put on together, um, put together a, a piece that we hadn't done for months, but we managed with our collective strength and our, our collective motivation to, to really put together something very special. <laughs> Strikes me that's one of those moments in in a in a lifelong career that you're always going to remember, isn't it? That's the extreme power yeah. of, of team and mm -hmm. commitment. Yeah, and I, I think to me that that's one of the fundamental things about modern leadership. It's we're really, uh, unfortunately, recent sociopolitical events have shown the opposite. But we, I think, we are collectively striving to cohesive leadership and and team um, efforts rather than a dictatorial um, and know uh prescribed kind of leadership model yeah, that's a good idea good point okay so let's go from the positive to the negative what <laughs> is the biggest leadership failure you've either seen or experienced last year bella do you want to jump in um i think there's there's plenty of examples this this uh, last year was really really tumultuous um on a global sociopolitical scale and i think we saw huge examples of really awful leadership style um especially saddening in a time where a care for uh, mental health diversity and inclusion tolerance and peaceful coexistence is theoretically on the rise and it's been really sad to see the polarization the violence that's emerged thank you stefan it did the bad appalling leadership um well, I'll, I'll speak to a fictional example so as to not um, allude to any practical examples that I may or may not have experienced of this, but I think it is a truism that often we learn as much from bad leadership, if not more from bad leadership, than we learn from good leadership because it, it can stay with us in a way that's that's more visceral. Have either of you, did either, were either of you lucky enough to watch uh, Succession? Ah, yeah. um, no, but I'm very conscious of my ability. No, no spoilers, but I mean, what have you been doing? Because it's it is the kind of Shakespeare of our our time, in my view. But Succession really is a, is a story about well, it's a story about many different things. But one of the things you can 
you can one of the lenses you can view it through is a story of kind of how not to be a leader and there's a few things that you know watching succession having you know in my background worked in in areas like politics and advocacy and the pr and communications industry these are these are areas that have um have some of these traits running through them and a bit of a reputation often for bad culture but that you know the things that really come out of succession are you know allowing our personal heightened emotional state to spill outwards the people around us being unable to regulate our own nervous systems and emotional well-being in a way that then becomes contagious one of the things that i think the pr industry in general and i think lots of people who work in the industry and um, will will acknowledge this is is guilty of is this idea of lack of clarity as a form of manipulation i really came to understand this and i think there's a there's a big responsibility on um the agency world the pr agency world to understand that you are in this position of of power and responsibility when you are working with a client and i came to understand that that clarity added value and kind of nonsense and lack of clarity was extractive in a way because you don't you keep your client in a state of um not knowing or feeling uncertain and often people don't like to admit that they don't understand and so that lack of clarity and that ambiguity can become a form of manipulation and succession is fantastic at this it's just full of meaningless business speak combined with the most brilliant swearing and i really can't recommend it enough and i think the final thing that i picked up on from succession and have witnessed in, in my own professional journey is this idea of this imbalance between threat mindset and what you might call like possibility mindset and it will it, it will not surprise you to to hear another sporting example i have of this but to to link it back to the cricket one you know it's no surprise that Ben Stokes put this emphasis on making people feel safe and comfortable because it also happens to be the way you get people to perform at their best. So it's a kind of it's a it's a it's a win win in that sense. But I'm also a football fan, as as Penny knows, because I've talked to her off about this. <laughs> and when my grandparents moved from rural Ireland, they settled in North London, and from that day onwards, I was destined um, to be cursed with being an Arsenal fan. And Arsene Wenger, the old Arsenal manager, is somewhat of a philosopher. And I was watching a documentary about Arsene Wenger. There's a fantastic documentary and there's a final monologue that he 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 does as part of the documentary. And it's, he's somewhat of a philosopher as well. And he says, fear guides the restrictions of our ambitions. Don't be scared. Be audacious. Be ambitious. Your life can be wider than your wildest dreams. And I think like as leaders, that's so true. This This idea of threat mindset, constantly being in that threat mindset, the world around you shrinks and you shrink the world of the people around you as well. And so it's a constant challenge as a leader who is faced with very practical stresses constantly. How can you manage that threat mindset that so often helps us to identify problems before they occur with also balancing that possibility mindset and trying to relax into a sense of kind of trusting in the unknown and following the process and making life a little easier for the people around you along the way. That might have to be my mantra um, for next year or for this year, 2024. Thank you. Um, Isabel, um, what's ahead, do you think, um, in 2024? That was beautiful stuff, by the way. I, I really well, have to watch Succession now. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> really well, watch, yeah, watch Succession and, and credit to Arsene Wenger for the quote. Two very different vibes, <laughs> but I can recommend them both. Yeah. yeah. Um, so I think I think we've got an exciting, challenging year ahead for sure. Um, but I think within those challenges, we can definitely find opportunities. Um, obviously, there is a big 
challenge we're trying to face now um, globally uh, in kind of dissipating some of the polarization and conflict that's emerged um, and saddeningly um, seems to just continue to to evolve. Um, And it's it's especially disappointing to me because I I felt like we were really working towards um, a real increase in diversity and inclusion work um, in all corporations and organizations. And I was hoping that that was something that would have been spread um, a bit more um, affluently on a political level. Um, but I do think that within the core um, ethos of most corporation, corporations and organizations, there is a lot more effort going into the diversity and inclusion work. And I think that's going to pave the way for a very um, exciting and uh, diverse generation of leaders with different voices and different views, which, which I hope will kind of fuel creatively um, into a lot of the work that we need to do also in terms of um, improving our climate impact um, and improving outreach in creative ways using technology that's emerging, um, especially in the performing, performing arts where the cost of living crises and reduced funding, as well as changing trends in the kind of um, audience demographics that we have. I think leaders have a real challenging opportunity here um, to to face these logistical challenges by thinking outside of the box and keeping these performing arts alive by bringing them outside of the traditional perfume arch theatre and to new audiences and to unexpected venues. Um, A few years ago, actually, the English National Ballet performed at the Glastonbury Festival. And I think this is these are the kind of things that are really going to keep classical art forms such as ballet um, alive in the future. We have to bring them to to unexpected venues, bring them to the people. And uh, we're often asked in this world, oh, how do we bring new audiences to us? And I think our responsibility and and, um, leadership responsibility within the arts in the next few years um, is definitely not to bring the new audiences to us, but for us to take the art form to the new audiences. Um, Yeah, I think that that's that's one of the big um, opportunities. It's a lovely aspiration. Thank you, <laughs> Stefan. Well, uh, Isabel, I thought that's that's a really nice place to land that because that um, in the world of of misinformation and strategic communications, you know, this question of how do you how do you communicate with people who are becoming increasingly polarized? One of the mantras that we used to steal from, I think it was somebody in in U.S. politics who who said this. Forgive me, I've forgotten who it was, but this idea of meet people where they are before trying to bring them with you and i think you just like <laughs> a really nice example of that in like a physical sense but the challenge of 2024 whether it's physical or or in in a more kind of political sense or, or more global sense is you know how do we how do we meet people where they are and bring them with us but not lose ourselves or lose our message in that process of meeting people where they are and obviously 2024 this is the year of huge numbers of elections there's going to be huge changes of leadership all over the world closer to home obviously in the uk there's many many of us are expecting potentially a change of leadership although nothing's guaranteed but there's a reasonable possibility that keir starmer will be the the new leader of the country and to to be really specific to answer your question penny i think one of the questions that's really been playing on my mind is that there is a change of leadership in the united states and a change of leadership Mm -hmm. in the united kingdom how does a prime minister of a progressive political party who is also kind of committed to operating the world in the world as it is, not as he would like it to be, how does he manage that challenge of having a president of the United States who is kind of dismantling democracy and challenging the the established global order? And 
that's that's a that's a messy messy question with messy messy answers and it's it's not a simple one to answer we are coming up to christmas time so it does have me thinking and fantasizing about that scene from love actually is it where Hugh Grant on at a press conference in Downing Street kind of pulls out the um the American president um in that really that really funny and like very early two thousands way. I urge anyone who hasn't seen that film to go and look up that scene because it's fantastic. There's also some great Hugh Grant dance moves earlier on in that film as well. So yeah, that's I mean, going into twenty twenty four, if there's one thing I would like to be able to kind of look ahead and and kind of peek into the future and, and and see what happens. It would be really this big question of how does the United Kingdom, whose power is is diminishing, how does a new leader of that country operate in the world as it is, not as he would like it to be? And isn't that the challenge of leadership more generally as well? A, a challenge to whoever I think leads. So thank you both so much. This is such a lovely series because every time we have on these conversations, we're hearing about different types of leaders in different environments. And and thank you both so much for bringing the arts and sports and misinformation and so much else into this. Thank you so much, um, Isabel Brewers and Stefan Ronick. Thank you. And I'm just going to take one thing with me um, for 2024 um, as a leader to be audacious and to dream and, and change the possibility mindset. It's a really lovely thought process. Thank you. If you've enjoyed this conversation, um, please do keep an eye out for our other Leadership Insights episodes on the Aspen UK podcast. And also, if you're interested in joining our Aspen UK community, either as a rising leader or as a more senior leader looking to embark on or continue your own leadership journey, head to our website to find out more about our fellowship and our executive seminar opportunities. But for now... Thank you so much for listening.